and welcome to this episode of 10,000 Posts. It's a show about how everything is posting. My name is Hussein. You can follow me at hkazvani on twitter.com. As always, I am joined by... Hi, my name is Phoebe. You can follow me on twitter.com at prhroy. Uh, just before we introduce our guest, a reminder, uh, well, number one, thank you for listening to this free episode. Uh, if you are interested in the stuff that we do, we have lots of really good content on our Patreon. You can get all of that for as little as five bucks a month, patreon.com forward slash 10k post podcast. We have a lot of really fun, uh, episodes. We have some interesting interviews. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of like fun stuff on there and much more fun stuff to come. So, uh, check that out and your support helps us do the show and, uh, helps us kind of like create this like very fun community that we are building uh and speaking of which we have a guest on today who i think his work will be like really relevant to people who are interested in like not only the stuff that we do but also just like the ways in which uh tech surveillance uh is kind of implemented in workplaces in like just kind of like the modern functionings of the economy and why that might not be a good thing uh we are joined by a uh, callum kant who is the author of writing for delivery an editor for notes from below and also works at the oxford Institute institute doing some pretty cool stuff on ai uh callum how's it going yeah good thank you uh, thanks for having me on thank you for coming on we like, wanted to do this for a while uh and i feel like the stuff that you're working on is like really important uh like especially uh in relation to the uh ongoing amazon strikes uh currently taking place around the world actually but in the uk uh most recently uh, also just like the stuff that we've spoken about on like the gig economy and the ways in which uh, order and um, discipline is kind of like conducted using these technologies uh, and like the sort of political economy around that is something that we've sort of touched on with different guests. And it'll be really good to like sort of address that directly. Um, now, before we get into like that serious stuff, uh, usually I ask a guest uh, whether there's like a post that they want to talk about or a post that like they find is kind of uniquely interesting. Unfortunately because everything is kind of like queen related these days. And also because Callum like uncharacteristically spends such little time online, which probably is like the reason why you have such great skin and a very, very seemingly irregular uh, life. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I have, I have my own deficiencies, but yeah, for, for better or worse, <laughs> I spend less time on Twitter than I used to. Uh, like, yeah, I was to say it couldn't be me, but I wish it was me. Uh, so you, uh, while I was like sort of looking for posts to like talk about or like to kind of intro us for the first like bit of the episode, um, what I noticed was that there was actually like a really weird. So the second week of, week of September, which is the time that we are recording, seems to be like a really weird moment in posting cycles where lots of very good, bad tweets get posted. Um, so there are like lots of anniversary tweets that have seemingly like come up within the space, like basically like post 9-11, but like it ends at like the 20th of September. There seems to be this very weird window where lots of like bad good posts sort of come out so i wanted to like read a few of them that i've put in the notes and then we can sort of speculate over why exactly uh this kind of weird thing keeps happening so number one uh this comes from uh alexandra alexandra lee caps who i think is a journalist uh at the somewhere in the us who did the uh infamous just told my 10 year old daughter about hashtag rbg she has tears in her eyes then she said she then she did the wakanda pose and said Hashtag Ruth Kanda forever, which is the sort of pop culture crossover that I can celebrate. Um, number two, uh, this comes from, yeah, number two. Uh, we've actually covered this on the show before, but so just like a bit of whiplash for uh, both Phoebe and the audience. Uh, this is from Nicki Minaj. Uh, my cousin in Trinidad won't get the vaccine because his friend got it and became impotent. 
his testicles became swollen. His friend was weeks away from getting married. Now the girl called off the wedding. So just pray on it and make sure you're comfortable with your decision. You're not being bullied. Um, and the final one, um, which I can't believe I didn't remember until like I saw it as an anniversary run. This was in relation to uh, the, um, what was it? Uh, you know, this, the whole like Salisbury Cathedral situation with two Russians. Mm. Um, so Craig Murray, who was a former British ambassador to Uzbekistan, um, he posted this. Plainly, they are not entirely open. Most likely, most likely interpretation uh, of that is that they are a gay couple. Not a good thing to admit in Russia, sadly, and that they are involved in the dodgy end of the bodybuilding supplements trade. I mean, like I said, he does have some wacky opinions. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I mean, saying like, he yeah, doesn't. I, I just appreciated the tweet. I thought it was like very funny, but like, it's not. I don't. I don't want to like necessarily unpack the tweets themselves. Although, please feel free to do so. I think it's more just like all these sort of happened within like this. Like, you know, the Craig Murray one happened in 2018. Uh, the Ruth Kanda one happened in 2020. The Nicki Minaj one happened in 2020, uh, 2021. And they, they all sort of happened like within the same window of the second week of September. So I guess the question that I'm like bringing to the table is like, why, ever, why are all these tweets emerging like around about the same time in every calendar year? I think I've got a theory here. All right, let's I'd go. Love, I would love to hear this because I okay, also have okay. a theory. I would like to know how, how much they align. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think this is posting pre-season. So if you think like uh, mm, over the summer, so all the worst tweets come from journalists, obviously that's the first mm -hmm. rule. So if we accept all the worst tweets come from journalists and journalists during silly season don't do any work uh, and essentially can't cover because parliaments in recess can't cover any serious news. So just do ridiculous stories. They're not used to tweeting. They're kind of like breathless. I just had a chat with a Tory and they told me this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think this time of year is probably when parliament's back in, they're starting to come back to work. They're back in London. They're chatting to their, their sources more regularly. And, and they just have to, you know, get themselves into form a little bit. They're going to they're gonna play their way into okay. uh, standard tweeting. But on that way in, they're going to let some absolute howlers go. So these are the pre-season friendlies? Yeah, yeah. I think, right, you, okay. you know, what you're kind of seeing at the moment is like a manager's not sure whether he's playing a back four or a back yeah. five. So Laura yeah. Goonsberg tweets out a racial slur, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, interesting. No one, uh, no, one, yeah. no one knows whether or not Dan Hodges' hamstring is going to be fit. So he's just, <laughs> he's just doing a little test. This, this actually makes perfect sense. I was going to suggest something about it being the fall equinox, but um, I'm, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to go along with the idea of it being the preseason, the preseason warm-up. It could be both. I think part, I think part of it is it's the, it's the end of summer. People are kind of retreating back indoors. Evenings are drawing in, etc. And yeah. it's sort of... In what, the wild card here, though, that neither of these account for is the Nicki Minaj one. Because that's yeah. just... That's, I mean, there is no theory that can account for that. That's just such a level of posting that I think it surpasses any rational thought. Well, I th what, was the, what was the eventual line when we did the episode about Nicki Minaj's vaccine post? Um, I can't remember what our conclusion was. I think it might have been one of, the, one of those... Uh, ones where we just said she can do she can do what she likes um, because like nobody's presumably taking public health advice from Nicki Minaj. Yeah, I've just checked the tapes on this one, and the direct line was that due to her verse on Monster, she can do whatever she wants, um, and that's fucking tea for real. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, yeah. Super base. I mean, yeah, once you produce yeah, super base, you can do what you I want. Honestly, I sort of do think that a little bit. I, 
Um, I I am not keen on the uh, on the current interest in turning politicians into celebrities and turning celebrities into politicians. I think that celebrities should behave like mad rich people. I don't want them to pretend they're like me. They're not like me. They're a different species to me, and I think it's fine for them to just for them to just act out. I think it, like what I what I want from celebrities is I want to hear that. Um, I've, have I even said, I might've even said this in last week's episode. It's just, I'm just so delighted with this information. You know, that, uh, Madonna has never worked with David Guetta. And the uh, reason, yeah. and the reason is, is that she won't work with Scorpios. Interesting. What? Okay. Yeah. All right. See, that, that is, that is <laughs> mad rich person behavior. And yeah. that's, that's, that's what I, that's what I want to hear. I you don't want to, you know, I want to be lectured yeah. to by, I don't want to be lectured to by like Taylor Swift while she's like. On her you know, jet. Well, yeah, exactly. Like while she's kind of, you know, sort of consuming the energy of a small country. I don't really. You don't want them to pretend to be nice. You want no, them, I to, don't want them to be openly to be nice. I want, yeah, yeah, I want them okay. to be, I want them to publicly, uh, to publicly demonstrate the fact that riches and celebrity are a particular kind of depravity and they produce a particular kind of insane behavior and that's that's yeah. that's what I, that's what i think that i think there's no point of having a cult of celebrity if you're not going to if they're not going to you know do <laughs> their not, part if you're not going to do the cool cult ship and there's no then there's if no they're point not, if they're not if they're not fulfilling their part of the bargain i don't i don't yeah. want them get rid of them <laughs> that's my was, that's yeah. my position there was someone who sincerely argued this like not that long ago i can't remember who it was but it was very much just the idea that like the kind of as celebrities have sort of tried to be like tried to be more like relatable or at least kind of like you know whether that's sort of contrived or just like the way that celebrity is you know the whole just like fascination of celebrity is i don't know it's not necessarily like declined but sort of gone in different ways and being nostalgic for that period where like celebrities were just kind of you know they by the nature of like their riches uh, and their fame, like they, they were able, to, their job, their perceived job was to kind of project a lifestyle that was just completely unattainable. Um, and mm. that led, and that was like the source of their fascination. And like, I don't know, it was like, I can't, maybe it was an article actually, but it was just sort of like the decline of like the celebrity or whatever. I don't know, if someone else, if so, if this sounds familiar and someone, like a listener like remembers this, do like send it to me because I'm now just like, uh trying to like really dig into my brain the other thing i was going to say phoebe is that we have never done a astrological compatibility test for whether we we should work together no and but you're maybe what, we should have done that before we maybe, started maybe, maybe we should have done but we're two years in it's too late now sunk cost fallacy yeah <laughs> we're, we're too yeah too too i i am like quite interested by that um yeah i don't know like do we have any final thoughts on just like what the significance of the second week of september is like my thinking my thinking going into this was like maybe it's sort of like a back to school thing right mm. um like yeah as you mentioned like you know you've sort of had the summer off and like it's been you know i don't think this summer has necessarily been like a slow one but like you know compared to the rest of the year it's like a bit of a slowdown not that much stuff is happening so you sort of like you know uh mentally you've kind of like got a bank of stuff that you now have to use up and so um, you're sort of like combining. You're you're trying to just use all that pent up energy, and the way mm -hmm. that that energy is used often will end up in like kind of weird results. And I yeah. wonder whether like just you know yeah whether it's like a whole like back to school thing, and just like using up a lot of the energy that like you just didn't use during the summer. 
Yeah, I think it's totally plausible. I mean, me and my wife both work with French people as part of our jobs, okay. right? And they have right. such an intense, an intense summer break that when they come back, I think they have a lot of just as a nation, a lot of big French energy in the early early weeks of September. Wow. Okay. Um, so is it the case so that the energy, I mean, yeah, they're importing the energy or like, you know, <laughs> yeah, big French gas. Uh, no. So if, if, if that applies to the nation of France as a whole, then it should also apply to Twitter. That's, I think that's a reasonable rule. You don't happen to know when the 68 riots started? Uh, May. Okay. Yeah, I was, no. I was working yeah, up to a theory there. <laughs> that well, could have been a good theory, for, yeah. Thank you, for, thank you for standing on my theory. I've been one which I, I think the, um, happily put the about. general election in which de Gaulle did brilliantly and crushed the left, I think may have been around now. So if anything, a, a lot more of that bad French yeah. de Gaullist energy. So bad, you, can still send, yeah, you, you can still send that email to Foreign Affairs Journal. Yeah. I'm going to. I'm going to. Yeah. I'm going to send. I'm going to send them something increasing, increasingly hysterical in tone <laughs> about about. Did you ever consider that uh, that it was the autumn equinox <laughs> that, that led to the great uprisings of 1968? And uh, yeah, and I, I fully expect to receive a gracious answer. Yeah. Well, look, the be- the biggest test of all this will actually be this year, whether we see like a really, really unhinged post. Um, because crucially, uh, uh, I think at the beginning of this week, uh, Mercury officially went into retrograde. I don't know what that means. Um, I've, I've been explained it many times and it's sort of just like washed through me, but apparently it's significant. And according to like my kind of for you page on TikTok, uh, it's a bad thing and should not be celebrated. I mean, are we sure that we haven't already seen? I mean, we do a retrospective on some of the Queen tweets. We might have already seen a heroic post that we just, you know, maybe it doesn't stand out right now, but in retrospect, it'll be in kind of like uh, yeah. artists yeah, who maybe, become great after they die. They'll yeah, be maybe, like, we'll look back on these tweets and be like, oh, yeah, maybe wow, Lilico. Maybe Lilico's like horny eyebrow. Yeah, tweet. I think Lilico's <laughs> horny eyebrow post has to be has to be up there. Um, surely it has to be up there uh, in. To some, to some degree. Because, yeah, don't yell at him. Mercury's in retrograde. It's not his fault. Well, Mercury being in retrograde is not necessarily a bad thing. It just signals delays and do-overs. So, right, allegedly. Okay. okay, I don't know. I'm just like going According by... According to the Mercury heads. Look, there was just there was just like some girl on TikTok, my for you recommended page on TikTok. I don't know why it was recommended. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was just like, this is not a good time. Don't celebrate it. Don't like do aesthetics on it. Just respect what's happening. That's basically what she argued. And I was just like, okay, like, I'm not going to argue against that. We're going to be talking. We're going to be talking a little bit about a little bit about TikTok um, in this in this episode. Yeah, but not about astrology in a very minor way. Not about astrology TikTok. But I just I would like to just just interject at this point, just to say that I think that one of the worst things about TikTok is that if you had nothing to do with teenagers before TikTok. There was really no way of being kind of scolded by teenagers. And now I feel like I'm being scolded by teenagers all the time. And I, I hate it. And, and to, to, this, uh, to this young lady, I would say, uh, actually, I am going to do uh, Mercury Retrograde Aesthetics and you physically can't stop me. <laughs> See, this is why I don't have TikTok. I, don't, I can't deal with that energy. 45 minutes on Twitter a day and no TikTok for me. I just, I don't know how you do it. Do you time yourself? 
Yeah, I've got my phone like locks oh, it okay. after 45 minutes. Oh, oh okay. my God. Okay, you really have to like do give me like for the sake of saving my marriage, which is like three months in right now, you do have to like give me that advice. Oh, wait, when did you get married? Oh, it was like in uh, August. Uh, no, it was in June. June. Um, yeah, June, I got, June. Married. I got married in July. Um, hey. Hey. Congratulations to both of you. It's it's a dude's rock season. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I like. Was you know, Mercury in retrograde in June, July? No, it wasn't. But, no, I can't remember where uh, it was. So it was a good time. Yeah, it was a good time. It was a good time. At least according to the teens. Um, okay, well let's let's like leave the posting retrospective there okay. for now. But what I will say is for listeners who do have theories about like the second week of September, um, if they're good, yeah, send them to me. Uh, I'm just genuinely intrigued whether like the pattern is something that other people have thought about as well. Um, as mentioned, this episode like is a bit more serious in tone than like ones that we've done more recently, um, and it's because like we there's been a thing going on. There's been like actual stuff happening that is important for us to talk about, and crucially, uh, something that you've written about, Callum, recently uh, about the Amazon strikes uh, currently like taking place across the UK, but as also part of like a much broader. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, much broader like phenomena happening around the world and particularly in America. Um, for people who aren't necessarily familiar with what is happening with the Amazon strikes in the UK, I wondered whether you could uh, give uh, give us like a rundown of like what these wildcat strikes are, how they sort of came about, and uh, yeah, like sort of the origin story behind them. For sure. Um, so these Amazon strikes, I think, are globally unprecedented, particularly the ones occurring in the UK, right? Um, so that's quite an important thing to put out there in the first instance. Like there have been consistently strikes at Amazon warehouses now since uh, kind of the mid 2010s, but this is the first time uh, we've seen strikes like this. And so what makes them unique is that essentially they're not organised by any one union, right? So in the UK, GMB have been the main union leading attempts to organise Amazon. They've been doing so for a very long time. They've had, uh, by all accounts and, and uh, kind of from external evidence, relatively little success, uh, but. Earlier this year, we sort of saw an explosion of strikes, basically following a very low pay offer, right? So Amazon uh, offers two different rates of pay, one for London workers um, and one for out-of-London workers. Um, and it was going to increase both of these by a few percentage points, I think around 5%. And they brought the workers into every Amazon warehouse has like a big canteen space, right? And they, they, they informed the workers of these things. And then workers immediately, particularly in two warehouses, um, so at Tilbury, which is down the Thames Estuary, a giant one right by the docks there, mm-hmm. um, and also one in the Midlands, uh, just said, look, this is not okay, um, and immediately started discussing what action they could take. Um, so I, I spoke to one of the people who was involved in the, um, the, the kind of the first action at Tilbury, and, and they were saying that essentially there was just like these, so Amazon warehouses are divided into five different workforces, right? So basically they do everything from taking things out of um, trucks putting them into shelves, pulling them out of shelves again, packaging them up, getting them out and loaded up onto vans and lorries. Uh, so all these different job roles are meant to be separated so they can't have many conversations. I mean, the whole labor process at Amazon is designed to basically put workers in silos, limit conversation, limit mm-hmm. engagement between different parts of the workforce. But they all immediately began to discuss what was going on and before long, strikes have broken out, right? Um, now, the UK has some of the most authoritarian trade union, trade union legislation in the world. If Liz Trust gets away with Another round of tightening, as she um, has explicitly stated during the leadership campaign that she wants to do. We're going to have labor law, which looks like it's come out of a dictatorship rather than um, a contemporary Western democracy. This kind of law is incredibly restrictive in what you can and can't do. And basically, most strike action in the UK, you've got to ballot via post, which is like 
just an insane technological requirement. You've got to hit certain turnout thresholds. You've got to uh, leave a certain delay between balloting and action. The ballot's only valid for so long. There's a whole range of legal restrictions on the right to strike, essentially designed purely and quite overtly, I think, to reduce the amount of strike action and reduce workers' power in the economy. Um, But these workers just completely ignored it, right? So so they just went out on strike. And rapidly, uh, it was spreading across the country. And actually, yeah, we were, as notes from below, um, very interested in talking to workers on the ground and seeing what was happening because this was so unexpected. And, And they were saying that it was spreading via TikTok, it was spreading via social media, via Facebook groups. Um, and workers were basically picking up the meme of strike action and spreading it from place to place. Now, this is a dynamic that is probably, you know, most of us, when we, if you've been engaged in politics post-2011, as, as I guess most of us have been, um, you're quite familiar with observing that kind of pattern, like viral mm. spread of form of action is a, is a common thing, uh, particularly when it's mediated. I mean, if you think back to 2011, all the discussion of Twitter revolutions, right, there was this idea that social media enabled fundamentally new forms of um, spread for collective action that would totally transform the world. Unfortunately, it turns out they haven't transformed the world in, in quite the way imagined, but that phenomena was at work again, and suddenly you're seeing it spread from place to place to place. And so what the article tries to do, um, and there's a little interactive map on it, is basically track how it went from workplace to workplace, how it grew, and then also, unfortunately, how it subsided. Mm-hmm. Um, because it now seems clear that those initial waves of, of actions, those initial waves of strikes, have given way to a more submerged period of conflict in, in the time to come. Um, you know, we're talking about 10, 11 days of very rapid spread and action, then turning back into kind of um, from what on the outside looks like quiescence in the workplace, but almost certainly under the surface, it isn't quite as yeah. quiet as all that. What, what do you think um, the reason behind that is, behind the subsidence? Why is it lapsed into silence? Well, I mean, in the first instance, we've got to recognise that Amazon is incredibly um, good at suppressing labour union organising. They have lots of experience of doing so via multiple tactics. So if you look at Poland, for instance, um, they've been exceptionally good at uh, basically playing off a radical and a non-radical union uh, and trying to use one against the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and using, uh, so it's Solidarnosc, which is the kind of the famous Polish Union, using them against uh, smaller anarcho-syndicalist organizations, which have a base in the warehouses in Poznan there. Um, so basically, they've tried to do a kind of containment strategy there. In the US, you've seen, obviously, um, lots of very aggressive anti-labor tactics. In Germany, there's lots of experience there. In Italy as well. So Amazon is a big company that has huge experience in defeating unionization. Um, and they've been doing so for decades now, right? Like the first attempts to organize uh, workers in Amazon warehouses in Britain happened in Hemel Hempstead. It was one of the predecessors of uh, Unite that were engaged in it, and they got absolutely smashed. They actually, Mm -hmm. Amazon did a very unusual technique that you wouldn't really be used to seeing in the UK that much, but they basically preemptively called for a union recognition ballot and then smashed smashed the union almost entirely. They actually ended up getting less votes than they had members, right? Um, so it's a very experienced company that knows how to control labor. They have huge resources to do so. They're capable of pulling together expertise and resources from around the world. And I have no doubt, you know, that there will have been a team working in Amazon HQ on how do we suppress this. Of course. Um, so you can't rule out, yeah, adversarial action is a major factor. Yeah. Also, I mean, this is speculation because we don't really know. I would imagine that short-term action around this kind of stuff, um, I mean, certainly in the gig economy, you see it comes in waves unless it's really substantially organized Mm. so unless workers are setting up strike committees unless they're setting up their own forms of uh, association trade union these kind of infrastructures that can prolong mobilization things tend to be flash in the pan Mm. unfortunately when you have like relatively unstructured mobilizations 
they don't tend to turn into really long durée campaigns unless a lot of work has been done to kind of to put in that that um, those structures that can enable it to reproduce itself over time. Yeah. I wonder. I wonder if part of that as well is um, is a very very successive uh, successful sorry um, a very successful campaign of um, of organised hostility to unionisation, sort of starting with starting with Thatcher. Um, which seem which has it's not even that it's infected uh, sort of media presentation of it it's that it's sort of ingrained and enmeshed and um, the media is very very keen now uh, on fight on on finding on finding people who've been substantially negatively affected by strike action and uh, and kind of sort of fermenting kind of public hostility to it as well and also something that we talk about on the show a lot about how there's basically no there's basically no political education in this country mm. now and if you are if you are somebody who is from not a necessarily tertiary like tertiary educated background where do you go if you want to find out about effective organization tactics where do you where do you go for your politics unless you're entirely self-taught and while that has like a value in and of itself it doesn't have much of a value in terms of in terms of kind of teaching how to set up associations how to set how to how to organize and what to do other than other than go out other than go out on strike and if that doesn't work then they haven't got any kind of backup because there's this sort of mixture of kind of media political and public hostility to it but also there's there's no there's no there's no training there's no one telling them how to do it yeah i think 110% you're right i mean if you look at british trade unionism uh, we peak in terms of numbers density etc in 1979 right and mm. from there to now it's a catastrophic fall uh, mm. i mean the strike numbers we're seeing now are obviously promising workers are willing to fight when they're put up against the wall and threatened with 10% real wage pay cuts but um prior to this i mean we've seen just an absolute decline in strike numbers that's really quite terrifying. You look at the graph, yeah. it goes off a cliff. And even this year's numbers will likely only be a blip in that long-term trend. And I think it's, yeah, it's difficult to overstate the degree to which that collapse has been represented through, like we said, legal changes, but also ideological and social changes mm. um, and, and fundamental changes in the shape of industry, right? Like if you actually look at where trade union losses have come, um, by and large, if your workplace existed and was organized in 1979, it's probably still organized today. Mm. Like actually, if the, the workplace still exists, it's probably still organized. Where we had the worst losses have been where entire industries have been decimated, uh, usually in the private sector through deindustrialization. New industries have been established, your Amazons, your call centers, and actually the trade union movement has never got a foothold in those, right? Mm. So defensively, the trade union movement has generally been relatively successful at where industries haven't been completely shuttered, maintaining membership. But it's that yeah. offensive um, edge that we've lost. And I, I think, yeah, when you're talking about the role of the media, it's, it's completely true. My PhD research was largely with young workers in service sector workplaces. And it was really noticeable to me. So, you know, you're talking about workers in call centers, Weatherspoons, that kind of stuff, that often um, people were highly reliant on um kind of folk knowledge that had either been passed down through their family or they'd gained things through higher education. Like I'd literally have Weatherspoon's workers say to me, oh yeah, I read Marx's uh, 1844 Paris manuscripts and I liked the bit about alienation, so I became a worse worker. Mm -hmm. You're like, this is very funny, but also 
how weird is it that our tradition of politics and organizing is being kept alive through very limited kind of person to person passing on yeah. uh, of organizational knowledge and then kind of bizarrely through higher education, which has become a mass experience for much of the British working class, yeah. particularly younger demographics. Um, yeah. But it's still not a majoritarian one, right? Of course, um, yeah. But that's so, interesting yeah, it's, as it's, well it's in crazy. terms of that's interesting as well in terms of the in terms of the class in terms of the, cl- the class character of people who are interested in organizing in organizing and people who are interested in um, people who are interested in sort of what in sort of worker workers rights uh, it, because because of and I'm sure that there are a number of number of reasons behind it but because of the of the alteration in uh, in class with respect to tertiary education um, having been to university now does not necessarily mean that you are middle class and it certainly doesn't mean that you are uh, that you are leading a that you're leading a, a middle class working life at all um, and it's sort of just quite it's sort of quite interesting that the way that, again this is this is still more kind of sort of media media confections how they have successfully managed to turn this into a characterization of oh well this is just this is just middle class concerns with working class people are not interested in organizing they're not interested in unions this is all just this is all just sort of posh boys showing up and telling working class people what to do which is pretty rich given the class character of the british media but uh it's also but it's also something which is sort of i think quite sort of quite observable but it is interesting the idea that it's that it's kind that it's folk knowledge now almost um and if your if your grandfather was in a union then you'd be more interested in being in a union which i suspect is very much not the case over the over the decades i think that's probably quite a recent thing well, the idea of mass okay. union membership would have been, uh, I mean, in, in the numbers you're talking about, our grandparents being around. I mean, if, if your grandparents are working in the 1970s, right, you're working at the, the peak of British organised mm. trade union power. So um, if you go back another 70 years before that to grandparents' grandparents, then trade unionism would be much more patchy and the economy will look very different. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to stretch out over time. I think what also strikes me is that... Um, you know, we can't really look at labor resurgences in isolation. So it's really important to talk about Amazon specifically about how they use technology, how workers organize there and, yeah. and so on and so forth. But also we need to bear in mind that like throughout this conversation, that metapolitical context, the way in which, you know, um, Corbynism is part of it, uh, the way in which the media talks down to people and reduces people's confidence is part of it. Yeah. Um, the, the trade union assault that started with the minor strike is part of it. You know, it's all of that kind of context has to be there and understood and it's not even limited to the uk because i mean many of the workers involved in this are coming from um the ex-ussr right so you're talking about a whole number of mm. uh, interlocking factors and that mm. span over a huge distance so whilst it's i always like to do research which has a lot of detail in the workplace and which digs down into what's happening specifically in one place and you know i love the details of like how does an amazon warehouse actually work how do you pick the products i think that's really important yeah, that kind of concrete detail is often something we really lack as left analysts. Mm. We do need to also be able to make that shift up to the big picture and thinking about generationally what's happened to the trade union movement. Yeah, yeah. I I live like nearish an Amazon warehouse, uh, and like I haven't really been down there very much. Partly just because like it's kind of so I live like in an ind- in an industrial area in southeast London. Uh, so there's like like a lot of warehouses and stuff like that. But what's very interesting about the Amazon one is like how far removed it is from like 
all the other sort of like places in the industrial park um which means that like even to sort of get there it's like quite difficult to do and the reason why i brought this up was because i wanted to talk a little i wanted to ask you a little bit more about the kind of tactics that companies like amazon sort of employ in order to uh either kind of like suppress any sense of not even unionization but just sort of like collective worker action um and you sort of allude to some of it in your piece in the way that like you know your day-to-day functioning of the fun like the functioning day-to-day of amazon warehouses also incorporates like particular forms of uh machinery and ai machinery that um you know are supposed to sort of you know they are kind of tentatively supposed to work alongside workers to make an efficient service but it also kind of prevents uh workers from sort of interacting with each other uh like outside of like very limited settings which kind of keep getting more and more reduced and then the other component of this was and i think this was like a case that was used in the us where it sort of felt that like amazon was kind of creating fake social media profiles uh of like fake employees or hybrid employees that would kind of like were designed to sort of like refute people who were saying that like you know amazon warehouse conditions are really shit and like you know people are being treated really badly they'll kind of you know these sort of accounts would sort of reply um and these accounts would often only have about like a handful of followers and like you know sort of set up a couple of weeks before they would you know before they would become the full amazon defense committee where they would sort of tweet things like oh no actually my job is really good and i have really flexible hours and like you know it's the best job i've ever had and all, all that type of stuff and i wanted to just ask like about the way like i wanted to ask you what are the type of technologies that amazon does employ and what tech like technological techniques does amazon employ in order to like prevent any type of like long-term so like uh workers communication or like solidarity from taking place to the point where i wonder whether like the wildcat strikes are kind of more and just like the sheer randomness of it kind of like represents uh this you know the, the type of strike that like workers can do partly because um it is one that like subverts the technology they use to kind of like suppress any other type of long-term union action Mm. so in terms of thinking about technology at amazon i think the obvious place to start is like how do we link it there's often this tendency so i work in ai a lot at the moment and there's this tendency where people constantly look at ai as if it's like totally new right and and there's Mm. this obsession with novelty that often completely hamstrings our ability to actually understand what's going on in any one workplace at any point in time um, and it's usually hype creation associated with trying to get VC funding, <laughs> which is um, kind of problematic when you're trying to study the sphere. Um, so I think one of the really important things to do is establish continuity, right? So capitalist workplaces, I mean, Marx identifies all this back in capital, are basically um, premised on the bringing together of variable and fixed capital, right? So like human beings who can do work and use their labor power and the objects of labor, the, the tools of labor they need to use, right? They bring those together. Now, the, the variable capital um, is so-called variable capital. This is like human labor power because it can produce more or less value, right? Like mm. if I'm told to work for an hour, I can work for an hour and work very hard and produce lots of money uh, for my boss, or I can work for an hour and not work very hard, so I can only produce a little bit. But yeah. a sack of potatoes is always going to be a sack of potatoes, right? Yeah. So management and the role of management is to try and turn your labor power into the most money it can per hour. And there's a very long history of how that's been done. Um, So, I mean, you can look back at Taylorism. Uh, This is like the classical historical example of how do you study workplaces to try and intensify work. There's a whole load of tools and techniques developed over time. But basically, a lot of these come down to ones that maximize cooperation between workers, because that's what is productive, right? That that maximizes the way in which everyone can work together to produce more. 
um, but minimizes the possibility for like uh, conversations, for uh, autonomy in how work is organized, that minimizes the skill required to do a job, all of these uh, kind of developments. So what you saw in Ford factories like Baton Rouge plants in 1920, 1930, there's fundamentally not that much of a difference between the two. What's mostly changing here is that, for instance, you're using machine learning to train computer technologies uh, to um, basically instruct workers on how to use storage shelves at the most efficient degree possible, right? Mm. Um, so it's those kind of like micro changes. But fundamentally, the, the drive here is Amazon wants to use technology to increase productivity, increase the intensity of work, and to um, minimize the skill required to do the job. So the labor they can get to do the job is as cheap as possible, right? Those two factors are, are always going to be um, playing a role here. Now, what technology do they use? Uh, if you go to an Amazon warehouse, you'll see uh, loads of conveyor belts. There's lots of very unsexy stuff. There's also these Kiva robots. So the center yeah. of every major Amazon uh, fulfillment center now will be a darkened uh, cage in which <laughs> robots rush shelving around. Because rather than storing shelving in like yeah. endless long aisles, shelving is now moved to workers at pick stations who will have mm -hmm. the shelves brought to them by robots. The, the pick shelf is essentially like you have like a scanner, um, a, a conveyor belt you're going to put stuff onto, a set of steps. And then um, as you work, you're brought up one after another sets of shelving. This is where some of the AI comes into play. So there's a visual overlay on the shelving that brought, that's brought up where... Um, the software basically displays lights. So if you're putting items into the shelving, it will say these ones are, are open enough that you can put something in there, yeah. like there's enough space on the shelf, or it, it can be red and say, no, there's no, no space in here, don't put it in there. Um, and when you're picking it, likewise, it can say the thing you're looking for is on this shelf, right? Mm. Um, and it uses visual recognition to do that, and it will be using visual recognition to check how full the shelf is and so on and so forth. Now, all these technologies are not in and of themselves um, horrendous. You know, if we're going to run a socialist distribution center, we may well want to have um, kind of productivity maximizing tools, something like this, although unlikely to be of exactly the same design. But inbuilt into them is productivity management, whereby workers' pick rates are constantly monitored. Right. Now, there's some variation on how Amazon deals with pick rates, right? So historically, uh, they've had meetings every two weeks where workers are asked to account for why is your pick rate too low. And over time, pick rates were cranked up and cranked up and cranked up so that workers were expected to do more and more work until the point of physical injury, basically. Mm. Uh, and there's some fascinating research from the US that shows that the more um, technologically developed uh, the Amazon warehouses have been, the higher the injury rates have gone, right? Uh, that basically, a lot of this stuff is designed just to make work so hard that people get serious musculoskeletal problems just from trying to keep up with the robots they're working with. Um, so that is, I mean, historically has been the way they've done things is they've maximized work intensity. Now, however, there are some interesting signs that that strategy might not be viable anymore. Right. So if you look to California, there's this area called the Inland Empire, which is basically where uh, if you go into the kind of the logistical zones associated with the ports um, on that coast, there's acres and acres and acres and acres of warehousing with uh, up to, I think, about a million logistical workers employed there. Now, Amazon has gone through most of that workforce, right? And when I say gone through, I mean they've hired them, they've burnt them out, they've fired them, and then they've tried to hire them again, right? So mm -hmm. actually struggling, they're struggling with the labor supply, which now means that these workers um, who were once just replaceable and churned through very quickly, 
Amazon now needs to think, you know, are we actually um, going to carry on doing this kind of form of labor management because we might have workers refusing to work for us anymore, right? And we might actually be jeopardizing the conditions for our own company's survival. Yeah. Now, in the UK, obviously, we know we have incredibly tight labor markets at the moment. I'd say one of the paradoxes of our current situation is that like most workers are looking down the barrel of a 10% pay cut. And yet, if you look at the number of unemployed people and you look at the number of job vacancies, it's almost one for one, right? And historically, that's that's never been the case before. We have an incredibly tight labor market, which economists would say should massively empower workers. Mm. And yet, it seems like uh, it's not the case. But but that um, kind of marketplace bargaining power may have incentivized people to be involved in these strikes, because rather than thinking, if I go on strike, I'll immediately be replaced, they may now be thinking, oh, actually, uh, everyone's short of jobs, everyone's trying to hire, um, so maybe I have some more leverage in the workplace now. Um, and hopefully we'll be doing more research over the next few months to work out how far that was, the overt logic, and, and what exact role tight labor markets are playing. But yeah, I'd say historically, technology at Amazon is about maximizing productivity, maximizing work intensity, and reducing skill. Now, uh, it appears there may be um, some potential for shifts in how they use technology because of the changing conditions of the labor market, um, which means that their previous strategy of just burn through as many workers as possible isn't necessarily viable in the long term. But obviously, that will vary based on local conditions. And if we have a recession that makes, uh, as we are inevitably going to do, and if that leads to mass redundancies on a large scale and the labor market loosens up, maybe their strategy will become effective again. I have a, que- I have a question, and it's a kind of UK-specific one. How, how, far, how far do you think that it makes a difference in this specific kind of, in a specific strike action and specific negotiation with, um, with, with their employers? How, how much do you think it makes a difference that in this country your healthcare is not tied to your job? Yeah, I mean, I think it's part of, so when we talk about bargaining power, we're really talking about um, people's capacity to take risks, right? Mm. Um, and what effect those risks have when they take them. So for me, I, um, whenever I'm trying to look at uh, labor market outcomes, you're always trying to look in the, the big picture so you can see like, if this person stops turning up to work, is it going to have major effects on their life? And I mean, David Harvey theorizes this with regards to mortgages, right? Where he talks about car production and mortgages and says that mortgages are a singularly effective way of using uh, land and property values to tie workers into relationships where they can't go on prolonged strike. Because mm-hmm. if you go on prolonged strike, you lose your home, right? Yeah. Um, for me, I'm a member of UCU. If I want an indefinite strike uh, from tomorrow for a better than, uh, I think we've been offered 3% pay rise, uh, I would eventually end up losing my home, right? Like that's the reason why people aren't able to do that. Yeah. So yeah, this is certainly another, basically, however, however many conditions of uh, survival are predicated on your employment, um, the less powerful you are. I think it's one of the really interesting rationales behind universal basic services that kind of runs in the background and is often not foregrounded by uh, universal basic services proponents for understandable reasons is the idea that actually workers' capacity to refuse bad work mm. would massively increase uh, were we provided with basic essentials like food as a guaranteed right. Okay, yeah. that's very interesting. I've, so yeah. one other thing that we also want... Sorry, were you going to say something? Oh, I was going to say, well, I mean, obviously, as the, the fate of the NHS is up in the air, right, we need to be paying attention to this in the near future because there's yeah. a, a significant possibility, I think, for a lot of people that private healthcare is already offered by many UK insur- insurers, uh, mm-hmm. employers, including Amazon. Amazon actually offers private uh, healthcare if you're willing to pay, I think, yeah. 50% of the cost or something. Actually, that's like an interesting way to sort of go into... Um, 
like you know because what also one of the other things i was thinking about not in the context of amazon but definitely having conversations with people about like the state of the nhs and healthcare and like the number of conversations that basically go you know i support the nhs and like i support like the idea of public healthcare but practically speaking at this moment like if i so if something like was to happen to me um like i don't think that i would be able to sort of like wait for anywhere up to like 12 hours to like you know a couple of weeks and that you know i would sort of if a, if private healthcare was available to me and some for some cases you know as you mentioned like that healthcare is available to them uh via like their work um but there are lots of kind of these like telehealth care services that are like popping up like types of like healthcare subscription services which i know people in my life who like don't you know earn a lot of money who for whom like they've sort of like taken out either they've taken out loans or they've used like what savings they have to like um get telehealth care subscriptions basically on that basis that like uh the public services that were available to them sort of now seem off limits and i wondered whether like you're going to see not just amazon but other kind of like gig economy companies that are still like benefiting even in spite of like interest rate hikes and stuff basically leveraging like you know basically using stuff like healthcare and access to very basic human provisions as uh tools to basically prevent any type of like unionization actions from occurring or even any types of like spontaneous strikes from occurring Mm. Well, I mean, I, you see the most advanced and aggressive forms of this with Starbucks in the US, right? Where Starbucks in the US are very much trying to uh, differentiate benefits packages via um, stores, union statuses. Um, I, I think what we see in the UK is, yes, this is definitely... I was actually quite surprised when I started talking to Amazon workers and I found out that many of them had private health insurance. Mm. Because for me, I mean, and this is just a, a relic of, I don't know, I'm, I'm in my late 20s now. When I grew up, the idea of private health insurance as being something that like, a, a large range of people would have just to ensure themselves against the complete failure of the NHS was was mm. totally absurd. Yeah. We are now, I think, in a position position where the collapse of the NHS into basically an emergency medicine service and not that much else, and it's not even very good at that, mm. um, does mean that, yeah, for many workers, they're now reliant on these forms of payment. And certainly, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if employers start using it as part of their bargaining approach. Um, mm. Because actually, it's easier to claw back, it's easier to get a subsidized cost. I mean, there's a reason that um, employers offer benefits rather than increases in basic pay, right? It's usually that um, it, it gives an outsized um, impression of like benefit or it allows them some kind of um, control and, and leverage over the, the worker, particularly in the parts of the labor market we're talking about here, like the low wage section of the labor market. Um, offering health insurance potentially gives you the real ability to attract labor in a tight labor market, but also the ability to um, hold that over people in, in bargaining uh, circumstances. Mm. so speaking of like the types of organization that have been sort of occurring i think one thing that uh i think both of you actually mentioned was the fact that like for a lot of these wildcat strikes they were sort of being organized on uh public social media platforms like your facebook's and your twitter's and all that stuff and i think a lot of people would have sort of seen uh or like kind of uh yeah they would have seen the amazon strikes not through like the news but on tiktok so there were lots of like um like Amazon, like workers who uh, were like broadcasting the strikes on TikTok, uh, both in like the US and the UK, and I think like in other places in Europe. Um, and I wondered, Callum, whether you could talk to us more about how these kind of pl- public platforms were sort of being used, because I guess like you know one of the one of the questions I would kind of like an extension of that would have would be, I wonder whether like these public platforms are necessarily 
what what the dangers of using these are, especially when you've got you're up against a company like Amazon that readily employ lots of kind of surveillance technologies um, on you know against these platforms that like are publicly available and uh, yeah can also also have like their fair share of surveillance issues. So like what draws yeah. them to their platforms and like is it the case that like these are kind of the only things that or the most accessible things that they can really have for organizing or is it also like is there something more to do with just like the fact that um you know some people would just much rather like use these social platforms than necessarily like go through a like go through a conventional union mm. so let's zoom out a bit if we look at the platform economy right so the platform economy we mean basically gig economy broadly synonymous um there's a guy called maffey who did a study looking at web 2.0 communities is how he phrased it um now, by Web 2.0 communities, he essentially means like WhatsApp groups and, and Facebook groups. Yeah. And what he was interested in is, can I answer, are people more likely to be interested in joining a union if they're a member of these groups? And he found that overwhelmingly, yes, uh, for ride-hailing drivers, so like Uber drivers, if they're a member of a group designated as like Uber, Uber drivers, WhatsApp group, uh, Northeast or whatever, um, they would be much more likely to be interested in taking uh, in joining a union. So what we know from that kind of environment is that these digital communities um, can provide a scaffold for organization. From my own experience at Deliveroo, I found that um, the WhatsApp groups, which uh, workers in basically every city created to bring themselves together, whilst not in the first instance designed as like an organizing tool, very quickly turned into an organizing tool when the circumstances changed, right? So I think we, we can't really dispute the fact that um, modern labor organization is deeply uh, entwined with the way these groups operate. Similarly, if you look at um, teacher strikes in the US, there's a great book, uh, Red State Revolt, mm. um, which highlights the roles that Facebook groups played in those. Essentially, because these social media platforms are a form of organic social communication, they're how we talk to one another now, nowadays. We, we kind of live in the era of the group chat, right? Um, because they are organic, people will use them. Um, basically, Labor organizing always takes on the form of the society it's occurring within, right? So if everyone meets at a pub before work every day, like Dockers did, right? Yeah. Then they'll organize in the pub. If people are chatting to one another on group chats all the time, then they'll organize in group chats. Yeah. Um, it's very rare that people will adopt a platform or use a technique specifically for organizing until they're at quite a high level of commitment. Mm-hmm. So like if you're one of the Amazon reps or one of the workplace leaders who's been doing huge amounts of organizing, you may download Signal specifically to have a conversation with other yeah. Amazon organizers. It's very unlikely that a low level of commitment people will be doing that. So I think it's kind of useless for us um, to think, well, is it a good thing or a bad thing that workers are doing this? And like, should we be advising them to, or should we be advising them not to do it? Mm. It's, uh, it's going to happen. Uh, the mm. challenge is, as you were saying, your question to understand like what are the potential limitations here? Um, what yeah. are some of the challenges provo- provoked by that environment? Um, I would say, by and large, uh, the opportunities offered from talking to one another and being open are greater than the penalties at the moment. Um, so, like, I always think about this with more explicitly activist organizing. Um, you sometimes get people, particularly from like the anarchist tradition, who are very obsessed with security, right? Who will not um, be willing to talk to people in open spaces, who will like, basically limit their own organizing to a very significant degree in order to avoid surveillance yeah. at a certain point your your self-limitations are actually having more of an effect than your than than surveillance would be right right um so if, if you're going to limit what you're doing and limit how you're organizing to only specific forms of encrypted communications then yes you are going to be um 
you're going to be significantly hamstrung. Whereas actually, do we have any evidence that Amazon can access workers' uh, WhatsApps? No, we don't have any evidence of that at all. Do we have any evidence they can even access their Facebook groups? Not necessarily. I mean, it wouldn't be that hard, but then some of these Facebook groups are very big um, and are treated as semi-public anyway. Yeah. So I, I would say that like, yeah, there's there's always need for skepticism about the concentration of big tech and the way in which communications in our society are increasingly owned by a number of monopolies like Meta and the rest of them. Yeah. Um, but that should really operate, I think, on a larger level than when we're concerned with workplace stuff. Mm. So like for any one instance of workplace organizing, the insecurity or security of WhatsApp vis-a-vis signal is probably not really a relevant issue. But it is an incredibly relevant issue when we think like, say we were to put loads of these instances of organizing together and we were to have a uh, large you know, labor insurgency aiming to topple the government in the way that we did in Britain uh, in 1974, right? Say we had that kind of like coordinated strike action with an explicit intention of bringing down a Tory government, what would Meta do about WhatsApp communications if asked to, right? Mm. I think that's where it, the, the class struggle needs to reach kind of an altogether higher plane for some of these questions really to come into play because the incentive structure is such that if, WhatsApp are readily shown to be abusing their independence to favor Jeff Bezos. Um, that would have such negative regulatory implications in like European markets that's probably not worth doing in, in the short term. Mm. I, I think the reason that this sort of stuff comes up is, um, uh, for example, some of the stuff, like some of the extremely unpleasant stuff that's been kind of filtering in from the US uh, about Meta releasing communications. Uh, of people who are trying to who are trying to procure um, abortions in states where it's now illegal, um, I I very much see what you mean about how it actually has to be a sort of significantly kind of heightened threat for it to be kind of it for it to be worth for it to be worth the headache of um, of surveil- of surveilling in any kind of in anything sort of beyond the what is sort of now considered to be completely kind of normal level of surveillance that the average the average worker and the average person is placed under but i'm just interested in this because there's something because something we talk about on this show a, a, a fair bit is that is that one of the one of the big issues with the uh, with the sort of primacy of 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 big tech is that it's is that it's developed and innovated past uh past sort of decency past community past kind of past morality um and also in a lot of cases past uh, past the law um but of course there's the flip side to that which is that it's quite difficult for uh for both the state and for law enforcement to uh really make proper use of this stuff to kind of inter sort of interfere and interrupt uh worker action because it's evolved past them as well so that's the kind of flip side i hadn't actually sort of thought about with any with any seriousness so i've so it's it's definitely i think it's definitely quite a kind of quite a comforting thing to hear to to a certain extent well i i mean i definitely don't want to downplay the degree to which we are like living i think potentially in an era of authoritarian drift right Mm. like i don't want to make it sound like there is no threat here no of course i mean in terms of the near future i think we're likely to see what happens in Western economies, global North economies in the next decade, it's probably like inflation is going to stay high because climate related costs are going to stay high. Uh, the mitigation of inflation through massive government intervention isn't going to be viable forever um, just because elites will start to kick back against it before anything else. Uh, mm. So we're going to have a long term fight over real wages 
in an era of like no growth or low growth. So it's going to be a zero sum distributional conflict in which workers are going to have to fight in order to prevent constantly declining standards of living mm. uh, in what's going to be, I think, a really, really interesting development. I mean, in terms of macroeconomic conditions, that's not the kind of thing we'd expect. Mm. Um, you wouldn't really have many examples of that in global history previously. Yeah. So in that context where there's a constant fight between capital and labor just to maintain basic conditions where they are right now, uh, the state does look set to be playing a more authoritarian role. Um, yeah. And that's not just, you know, I think this stuff is of, often most obvious in terms of border policies. Um, yeah. Climate migration will obviously exacerbate that. We've seen Rwanda policy, Rwanda, um, the Rwanda policy, which would have been like literally unthinkable about five years ago uh, being implemented. And, and we've seen a wave of legislation aimed at cracking down the right to protest. And now potentially some on trade unionism. Like I don't wish to downplay the degree to which authoritarian drift in this this future context of climate collapse will be a very real thing. Um, I just think that there's a danger to overestimating it to ourselves because it makes us feel less confident, makes us feel more paranoid, makes us feel too isolated. Yeah. Whereas actually, like if you organise on a large enough scale, if there's enough of you, it's still going to be quite hard for them to do anything. Yeah, and of course, I mean. It, it's all very well sort of saying oh god you know people used to organize in the pub the people that used to organize at the like in the kind of the community hall or whatever um and now they're all doing it now they're all doing it over whatsapp and that's uh that's terrible because mark zuckerberg is reading is reading all the messages and um, which he might be i mean you know it doesn't but they used to send cops unlikely. to those pub meetings well, right? exactly. like i've got comrades <laughs> yeah, who like exactly. literally <laughs> had cops in there with them so whereas I mean, online not... everyone gets to be a cop whereas on, uh, online yeah. everyone gets to be a cop like it might be a might be a cop in your Facebook group. <laughs> there was actually a point where the Bolshevik Central Committee was more cops than it was normal people, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And yeah. they still managed to do a revolution. Like there yeah, was, was um, yeah, fair they enough. used to send people when they knew someone was a cop, uh, they'd send them into the Duma, the parliament, to do like a really aggro yeah. speech so they get sent to Siberia. <laughs> and they were basically like using them up. Just like a thought that I had while you were talking. Sorry, was can also, I, sorry, Hussein, yeah, yeah, can I what I was saying about, about, yeah, no, about that? is that something has to something has to replace uh what used to be uh kind of hubs of community organizing mm -hmm. and it's it's uh, like admittedly it's not it's hardly a perfect solution to rely on uh to rely on technologies provided by provided by companies who are who are you know who are very much part of the tension between capital and worker um and also something that like that, that that i've been thinking about a little bit that um that in the, the in the past when this kind of organization took place it did it, it did exclude mm. um it did exclude a reasonable proportion of the working population and i think a lot of and i think a lot of the kind of the recent resurgence in interest amongst young people in socialism and in and in organizing and in labor activity uh under under corbynism i think there was a a tendency to think of union activity and labor organizing as being this very practical and very masculinized thing so people still very much kind of valorize 
reasonably valorizing the minor strike you know that's not that's not um it's not it's not a criticism but in their heads it's very much kind of ah the unions they're the they're the dockers and the big lads that meet in the pub every friday and that's where and that's where they're doing their organizing um and obviously like the kind of character of precarious and working class labor in this country is very very different to how it used to be and it was but definitely something that i was noticing was that um was that say cleaners and uh, call center workers were being were being excluded from this characterization and were being exclu- not just characterization but were being excluded from the narrative about a revived interest in in labor organizing and something like uh, like a, like a what like a WhatsApp group or a face- Facebook group is going to be is going to be more attractive to uh particularly so so particularly to to women particularly to not saying that women don't like going to the pub obviously that's not what i'm saying please don't write in and say that's what i'm saying but in terms of like statistics women are are more likely to have um to have family responsibilities they're more likely to be looking after children they're more likely to be carers for elderly relatives Etc. They're less likely to have the time to be doing in-person organising, and I think that I think that while we should be a little bit cautious about saying, "Oh, isn't it great that you know they're putting out the calls to strike on TikTok?" Because anything which is easy to do and easy to access is also very easy to disrupt and to sabotage. But I still think it's I still think it's better than this kind of than this kind of very rigid idea of like what labor organizing can look like and what union activity can look like well i think we've essentially got to i think you're right i think we've we've essentially got to organize our or adopt our organizing practices to what exists at the time right like the the number one lesson i can draw from the history of the labor movement is you find out what's going on at this point in time and you adopt it you don't just fight last year's battle right you yeah. find out how are people talking to one another now yeah what are the points of convergence in the workplace what are point, points of convergence in the community you take you, you do that research you find those points you do the organizing off the back of it and that means you're you're constantly adapting and moving with the, the time period and i think that's part of like certain notes from below we talk about class composition a lot right that's this is a frame of marxist theory where we think about not just um the big picture relationship between labor and capital but how that big picture relationship is actually manifested in the specific circumstances of a particular workplace mm-hmm. um or a particular period of time um and so yeah i think that's that approach is kind of essential we constantly need to be looking for what are those points of convergence what are the points of antagonism between classes and like how mm-hmm. can we turn individual fights between workers in one amazon um fulfillment center into a series of fights between many many fulfillment centers into a series of class confrontations between you know workers and bosses more generally absolutely mm. i know that like, we're running sorry i know that we're running like close to time so i guess as like a way it doesn't even have to be like a final question but i think it's just like it actually relates to the point that you were making just now about um like finding people where they are and like i one thing i was going to say like to phoebe's point was that like it's absolutely right and also one thing like worth bearing in mind is that for a lot of uh warehouse workers but also just like a lot of people who rely on like or whose income comes from like uber or delivery like many of them also come from like mo- like minority immigrant communities for whom like you know pubs and stuff are not like mm-hmm. gen like you know the kind of historical locations for meeting and uh communicating with each other um and with that sort of with like the decline of public space more generally 
I sort of wonder whether, um, you know, the type like types of like communicative platforms, be they like WhatsApps or TikToks and everything, are kind of like those essential evils that are necessary in order to, uh, like even kind of have a fighting chance against these companies. Uh, the second, the second question I have, which was related to that, is more to do with like how established unions in this country are kind of how do they kind of like interact with the use of this kind of communicative technology? Because you know, I was just thinking about something that you said earlier on in the episode about how some of like the established unions have found it quite difficult to combat places like Amazon because of how big they are and like the types of resources that they have to their disposal, but also the types of technologies that they are able to use to uh, uh, to either crush protests or at least to kind of like minimize their impact. So I guess it's like that kind of final frame. I just wanted to ask you both about um yeah just like the ways in which you think these communicative technologies are like whether they are like more accommodating to uh different types of like the you know the different composition of the working class compared to what is often presented in mainstream media but then the secondary question of like how are kind of unions now um you know what what is their relationship to those communicative technologies that seem to be driving things like wildcat protests Mm. Well, I did a lot of um, research a few years ago into Deliveroo, um, looking specifically at how like Deliveroo protests are organised, worked as a delivery rider for a while. And one of the things that really struck me was that there was often this kind of like um, almost redundancy to trade union branches or, or a difficulty about what exactly the role of a trade union branch was, because the logical like centre of organising was always the WhatsApp group, right? It was like the city WhatsApp group was the, was the home of it. And with that, they could communicate to everyone. They could call strikes. They could work as, you know, from below directly could kind of do a lot of the functions that you would classically delegate to a trade union. Mm -hmm. What trade unions ended up doing in that space was they often um, ended up kind of fighting legislative fights, doing the big like political coalition building, doing the functions that only a union could do because actually, you know, building strike action had partly been delegated. So I was a representative of the IWGB in Brighton. Mm. um for a while and, and when we were trying to organize uh, like the first strike that happened in the city we didn't actually call it like a group of workers called it and then they told the union mm. you think historically that's a, an interesting um inversion of some of the relationships that would be would be um more used to seeing whereby a union plans a campaign of strike action um mm. but wildcat action is not new you know um and the capacity of workers to fight from below is not necessarily new I don't think we should valorize it as like a particularly effective or particularly successful or like the ideal way to organize. Because as we've been saying at the start, you know, the strikes that we've hung this episode on, they lasted 10, 11 days. Mm. Um, and yeah. now the struggle has become more subterranean again. So you do need organization in the long term to kind of build coalitions, support organizations, do all the organizing um, work that needs to happen between instances of, of um, collective action. Those are definitely essential. I think one of the challenges we face in the UK is that a lot of our trade unions have been through 50 years of decline, 40 years of decline, and they're really struggling to adapt themselves to new environments. Mm. And where some of them are take, picking up adaptive strategies, they're not necessarily good ones, right? Like if we look at GMB, which as we all know, it's, it's the Amazon union in the UK. It's the, it's the TUC um, union with the most invested in Amazon. It recently mm. signed agreements with Uber and Deliveroo, which are partnership agreements, right? They are yeah. essentially agreements in which the union is seen as like a collaborator um, of the company which attempts to deliver better results for everyone but they were also signed from above with like i think particularly in the case of Deliveroo, very little evidence that there was any organized worker base with the gmb or even any demand for a union 
Um, and Deliveroo were pulling exactly the same trick that Amazon were trying to play in Poland, right? They were recognizing the less radical union, um, which was willing to have a partnership deal in order to avoid talking to the more radical union, the IWGB. So that's the union that that would be and is leading organizing efforts at Amazon. So, you know, I have to say that sometimes um, I understand why some workers are, are just not bothering to organize with them. Um, you can mm. see why at many levels in the UK, trade unionism has become incredibly bureaucratic, um, incredibly ineffective, uh, stymied by regional bureaucracies, by power blocks, even internally, some of the major unions are so riven by like divisions between people of slightly different left strategies that it can be very difficult to see how they move forward in the short term. I mean, if you think about how a lot of the small unions that have emerged over the last few um, decades in London in particular, unions like UVW, IWGB, etc., have developed, it's largely because they were organizing efforts within the big unions that got stomped on. So like the IWGB used to be a Unison branch that um, they had their elections, they elected Latin American socialists and the Unison branch said no. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to, I'd only say this amongst comrades, right? But I, I really do think there's like a barrier in the way that a lot of mainstream trade unions organize in the UK and like our trade union strategies are not at the moment um, particularly effective at organizing in these greenfield workplaces. And a movementist approach, one based on like clear class conflict strategy that tries to build um, power through kind of coalition building that focuses itself on organizing and using the energy of young people who are, who are militants who can be taught how to organize in the workplace. I think that's the best strategy going forward because we know there are literally, there'll probably be the people who listen to this now, right? There are millions of young people in this country, um, or at the very least, hundreds of thousands of young people who have been engaged in thinking about politics over the last few years who work in the workplace but have not necessarily done their politics there, who are big fans of Corbyn, who are engaged in XR, who are engaged in the climate movement, who have mm. been politicised by the fact that our generation has been completely fucked over for, for such a long time now. Mm. Those people don't mostly organise in the workplace, but if they take the skills of older generations, they learn those, they learn how to fight, they learn how to use their WhatsApp groups to bring colleagues together, mm. then I think we see a really interesting potential development. So it may look in the short term like lots of kind of wildcat explosions like those we've seen at Amazon. But hopefully in the long term, it builds into a workers movement that can articulate, you know, a vision not only of like we deserve more pay, but also like we want a different society that's not based around completely destroying the climate and, and yeah. pursuing this like death cult spiral into nothingness, but instead based on like fundamental human goodwill to one another and like building a better world. Yeah, I, yeah. I, re I really hope it does. I mean... Mm. So it sounds I'm like what you're sure saying well, is, uh, <laughs> is uh, the, uh, the, the teens on TikTok will save us. Is that what you're saying? Is that, what, is that the same saying that If young militant workers uh, or people who've been politicized who are not currently workplace organizers, if they start organizing in the workplace, then we could start to see some really interesting developments, right? Yeah. What I really want to see is like loads of Chris Small style 25 to 30 year old people coming out as workplace leaders, um, organizing strikes, organizing conflict fighting for better wages for themselves and their colleagues. Because I think that layer of people is potentially where a lot of the most interesting developments of the next decade can come from. Yeah, I know. I, I agree. And I, I, and I very, I very much hope, you, hope you're right. We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't often take, uh, take an optimistic line on this show, but it's like, it's quite nice to, it's quite nice to have one. Yeah. 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 I think that's a good time. It's a treat. As a, as little, a, treat. As a little second week <laughs> yeah. of September treat. Yeah. A as a nice hope. Trip. Yeah, it's a nice retreat. You get some hope. Uh, no, on that note, uh, this has been a really good episode. So thank you so much, Callum, for uh, joining us. If people want to like follow your work and the stuff you're doing, how can they do that? 
Uh, I'm on at CallumCamp1 uh, on Twitter for 45 minutes a day. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, that, no, that's probably best. And then follow notes from below as well. Is it 45 minutes? Like, is that like at the same time every day or does it like vary? No, it's 45 minutes spread over the day, but it's almost always done by lunchtime. So okay. really, if you want okay. to talk to me on Twitter, you've got to catch me before. I am like yeah. genuinely fascinated by this. Um, just as like, I, love the, I, just, like, I love the idea that we're like, we're just talk, like talking about like how bad it is that like workplaces have all this kind of surveillance stuff in place. <laughs> and then we're just like, yeah, but you know what a good thing you can do? You can set up a spy camera on yourself and it stops you looking at Twitter. Yeah, what if like it was a cop but just for you personally? Yeah, what if you, what <laughs> yeah, if you were your own me around. What if you were your own boss, then what does the labor relation look like? Yeah, interesting. Like and not that far away from like <laughs> anyway, anyway, uh no, you can follow uh Callum on there for 45 minutes today, but also like read his book and read his stuff. All the links will be in the show notes. Uh thank you very much for listening to this free episode of 10,000 posts. As mentioned at the top, we do have a Patreon patreon.com forward slash 10k post podcast you know what's follow me phoebe do you want to like plug anything nah yeah you do you want to oh, okay i will plug it for you listen to <laughs> phoebe's other podcast masters of our own domains very very good it has our friend milo edwards on there um yeah because it's a free episode and you never know like you know uh, who, who who will arrive uh <laughs> and the final plug that i have is uh for as always our producer devon uh, you can follow them at devon underscore on earth and you can also listen to their good podcast kill james bond uh yeah and i think that's it from all of us so uh until next time we'll catch you later have a good one bye 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 bye